this morning's passage, uh, if you weren't here last week, it comes on the heels of the, the parable that Jesus tells of the rich man and Lazarus, one of, the, one of the heavier parables in Luke's gospel account, a parable primarily addressed to the, the Pharisees who were lovers of money, Jesus says, though convinced of their own self-righteousness, scrupulously fixated on certain aspects of obedience down to the tithing of the most insignificant of herbs, going back to chapter 11, even going beyond what the Mosaic law required at times, legalistic on the one hand, all the while neglecting the weightier matters of justice and the love of God, antinomian on the other hand, against the law. Having managed to miss the, the law's heart-piercing demands by way of their insulated rules. And with that, a failure to truly love God from the heart. In addition, they had failed to embrace the heart of the, the Good Samaritan in welcoming strangers, caring for widows and orphans, and helping people in need. It wasn't Jesus who was guilty of overthrowing the law. It was those well-versed in the law hiding behind a veneer of religiosity. It's a sobering thing to think about here in the American South. They had all they needed standing right in front of them, the fulfillment of the law and the prophets, the Messiah, all the while rejecting Jesus' word and teaching, and with that, a rejection of the kingdom. It's with that in mind that, that Jesus directs his attention to his disciples with a series of teachings having to do with the nature of discipleship. This isn't new in Luke's gospel account. This is just more of the same. If you pick up in verse 1 of chapter 17, and he said to his disciples, Jesus did, temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. Maybe you thought after last week it was going to get a little lighter as we continue to work through Luke's gospel account. Here Jesus declares that temptations will surely come on this side of the consummation of the, the kingdom of God. We live in a world filled with sin and sinners. Jesus himself knew what it was to be tempted all the way to the cross, yet without sin. And yet, what does he say? He says, woe to the one through whom temptations come. The one who causes others to sin. The one who brings leaven into the picture in the sinister way that Jesus uses that imagery in the Bible as it pertains to his kingdom, as it pertains to his church. Little ones here, perhaps referring to children, but more broadly speaking to anyone who's a follower of Jesus, particularly those who are new to the faith. If you look at Luke chapter 10, verse 21, going a few chapters back, in that same hour, he rejoiced, Jesus did, in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. Jesus says those words right after telling his disciples not to rejoice that the spirits were subject to them, but to rejoice that their names are written in heaven. His disciples being the little children to whom he's referring. Or how about Mark chapter 10 verse 24. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. You may recall 
the, the hard word that Jesus brought to the Pharisees uh, in a series of rebukes back in chapter 11, where we're told, verse 44, Jesus says, Woe to you, to the Pharisees, for you are like unmarked graves, and people walk over them without knowing it. It's one of the greatest insults that Jesus ever directed at the Pharisees, by the way. That to come in, in contact with the grave in Jesus' day was to jeopardize ritual purity, to make one, oneself unclean, which, which made the marking of graves all the more important in keeping a person from walking right over a grave unaware. Hence the whitewashing of tombs. You're like an unmarked grave, Jesus says to the Pharisees, thinking highly of yourselves and your perceived righteousness, and yet you're completely unaware that not only are you unclean, but beyond unclean, you're dead inside. And more than that, you lead others to the pit of death as they unknowingly walk over your teaching like an unmarked grave. It's strong words to say the least. Words which apparently offended more than just the Pharisees who were present in that moment as the scribes or the lawyers told Jesus that his words were insulting to them as well. To which Jesus didn't say, oh, I'm sorry, I wasn't talking about you. Rather, he said, chapter 11, verse 52, woe to you lawyers as well, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter yourselves and you hindered those who were entering. The Pharisees thought highly of themselves in their perceived righteousness, and yet they were leading others to the pit of death, unmarked graves that they were. Likewise, the lawyers thought highly of their interpretation of the law, and yet they were not only misinformed themselves, but they were leading others away from a right understanding of the knowledge of God. Coming back to this morning's passage, the, the phrase, and think about this for a second, if you've been tracking with, with the book of Luke for some time now, the phrase translated cause to sin in these verses, it comes from the Greek word scandalizo. It's where we get our English word scandalous or scandalize. And the scribes and the Pharisees, they thought that Jesus himself was the scandalous one in his befriending of sinners, his befriending of tax collectors. And yet they were the scandalous ones in leading people astray. See how it just gets turned upside down on its head over and over again throughout this book of the Bible? It would be better, Jesus says, for such a person if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea, verse 2, than that he should cause another to sin. A millstone was a really heavy stone used for, for grinding grain. So heavy that it would surely drown a person, maybe even break his or her neck on the way down to the, the ocean bottom. It was actually a way that some Jews died at the hands of the Romans, as the millstone was a, a form of Roman punishment for insurrectionists, for opponents, for agitators of the empire. It's the kind of death that, that would have been horrific to a Jewish person in Jesus' day, not only for the horror of sinking to the bottom of the sea without any hope of a next breath, but two, because Jews believed that a proper burial was, was crucial, which you don't get if you're floating at the bottom of a body of water, right? And with that, the superstition of many Jews who believed that the sea was haunted by, by apparitions. Remember when the, the disciples saw Jesus himself walking on the sea? And they were terrified and cried out in fear. It is a ghost. 
right? Jewish or not, it's, a, it's an absolutely horrific way to die. None of us would want to go out like that, right? And notice that Jesus doesn't say that, that that's what will happen to those who lead others astray. Rather, he says that that kind of death would be better than the kind of judgment that awaits. Presents us with a sobering question. Are we pointing others toward Jesus or away from Jesus? In what way or ways might we be in danger in our day of leading others astray, of derailing others in their Christian journey by what we've done or said or, or haven't done or, or said. He goes on to say to his disciples, verses 3 and 4, Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. Man, if verse 4 doesn't make every one of us run to the cross, nothing will. Right? Not only does, does Jesus care that we not cause others uh, to, to stumble into sin, but two, that we meet others should they stumble into sin with both truth and grace. Dual engine jets. That obedience to Jesus, it involves rebuke at times and forgiveness at others. We talked about this back in our study of 2 Corinthians chapter 2. How does Satan outwit God's people? Well, the devil loves unrepentant sin on the one hand and will do everything in his power to keep Jesus' church from rebuking unrepentant sinners. And the devil, too, hates forgiveness and Christian love and will do everything in his power to keep Jesus' church from wrapping their arms around repentant sinners. So that we've been outwitted by Satan if we... If we choose to ignore unrepentant sin on the one hand, thus compromising the corporate witness of the church and the integrity of the gospel, and we've been outwitted by Satan if we choose not to forgive, comfort, and love repentant sinners, thus sowing division and discord where there would otherwise be unity and peace. That we're called to be ambassadors of reconciliation, 2 Corinthians 5 and Christ-exalting reconciliation involves both. The truth necessary to, to confront unrepentant sin and the grace necessary to, to restore repentant sinners. And as I just alluded to, notice that Jesus doesn't make the second of those two any easier, does he? As he describes a kind of forgiveness that, that makes many of us incredibly uneasy. Seven times in a day? Should that brother or sister have sinned against us and repent? That Jesus would even have a category for that. That's not repentance, we would say. Most scholars understand this to be symbolizing a forgiveness without bounds. As Jesus says to Peter elsewhere, Matthew chapter 18, verse 22, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Philip Ryken in his commentary says, As soon as we start talking about forgiveness... We're talking about something very close to the heart of the gospel. Something that draws us immediately to the cross where Jesus died. It is only in the cross that we can find any satisfactory answer for the problem of unforgivable sin. The cross, he says, finally acknowledges the sinfulness of sin by placing it under the wrath and curse of God. But it also atones for sin, providing a way for sinners like us to be forgiven. 
that it's because of the gospel that we can forgive repentant sinners, even if their repentance, unbeknownst to us, is disingenuous. Knowing that, that God didn't forgive us in Christ with limitations, not on our end, right? But rather a, a full and forever, past, present, and future forgiveness in Jesus. We forget it so easily, don't we? Surely he couldn't have died for all of my sins. And with that, knowing too that God will sort everything out in the end, in the balancing of the scales of his perfect justice, as in the story of the rich man and Lazarus. Remember, we're on the heels of that very parable. It's not to say that that people aren't to be held accountable for their actions or that, that trust is easily rebuilt when broken. It's simply to say that that the follower of Christ is to be in the business of forgiveness. Again, the devil loves unrepentant sin. He'll do everything in his power to keep us from rebuking unrepentant sinners. And he hates forgiveness and Christian love, and he'll do everything he can to keep us from wrapping our arms around each other when repentance is there. Christ-exalting reconciliation, it involves both the truth necessary to, to confront unrepentant sin and the grace necessary to restore repentant sinners. Any church is going to have their, their difficulty in, in wrestling with which way they lean. It's, it's similar to, to the, the nature of the reality of the, the kind of language that we've used uh, about the prophet, priest, king paradigm for the church or the head, the heart, the hands of Christianity. If a church is really heady, they'll be in danger, perhaps, of lacking in affection, perhaps a coldness, or if they're, they're very hands-on, walking in great obedience, maybe one of the other two will be lacking. Same thing here. If a church is, is very much in the business of forgiveness, there's a likelihood that there will be a danger, that they're not in the business of rebuking, and vice versa. And that's a collective thing and an individual thing for each of us to wrestle with as well. Where do we see opportunity in obedience to Jesus to lean into that, that both and, to be stretched by the Lord in a truth and grace kind of way? He goes on, Jesus does, in verse 5, the apostles said to the Lord, Luke tells us, increase our faith. And the Lord said, if you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. The apostles at this point, and we should really be too, they're at the end of themselves. Having sat under the many difficult teachings having to do with the nature of discipleship, and so they cry out for faith. Like the father of the child in Mark's gospel account, I believe, help my unbelief, Jesus. In the words of the apostle Paul, who is sufficient for these things? And the answer, of course, is God. God is sufficient for these things. Which is why Jesus dismisses the request for an increased measure of faith. Do you notice that? It's not so much the quantity of faith, the amount of faith that matters, but rather the sovereign power and might of the one in whom our faith is placed. I met so many people and and I wrestled this, uh, with this myself as a kid, even though I was in and out of the church, kind of back and forth. Just this idea that there was this faith meter 
and that, that the Christian life was meant to be an exercise in introspective navel gazing, just a constant looking within to see if the meter was moving up or down. And, and with the, the movement up or down uh, was the determination of how God was going to operate and act in this world and in my life and in his church. Jesus is calling us to something different. Not to the inward exercise of navel-gazing, but to look at the object of our faith and to see the power and the might and the glory there. Jesus says, faith as small as a mustard seed is sufficient if the object of such faith is the God for whom nothing is too difficult. A point that Jesus further drives home by bringing before the apostles the imagery of a, of a mulberry tree. It was believed that, that the roots of, of such a tree in Jesus' day could remain firmly in the ground for upwards of 600 years. That Jesus is painting a picture of the seemingly impossible, a several centuries old tree uprooted by seed-like faith in a sovereign God. That's what repentance is like, verse 3. A person of faith declaring to the firmly planted sin in his or her heart by God's power and grace, be uprooted and planted in the sea. That's what forgiveness is like. Verse 4. A person of faith declaring to the firmly planted bitterness in his or her heart by God's power and grace, be uprooted and planted in the sea. Our God is sufficient for these things. Jesus wants us to see that. Luke wants us to see that. He's gone to great lengths to show us that from the very beginning. Chapter 1. How does Luke's gospel account begin? With the angel Gabriel declaring to Mary, for nothing, nothing will be impossible with God. That if God could plant the seed of Christ in the womb of Mary, the miracle of the virgin birth and incarnation, surely he can plant the seeds of repentance and forgiveness in your heart and in my heart by his sovereign power, by his grace and mercy. Our inability to fully grasp it or make sense of it, it doesn't diminish in the least God's power to accomplish it. Again, Riken says, he is the God of the virgin birth. There is no sin he cannot forgive, no relationship he cannot reconcile, no problem he cannot resolve, no need he cannot meet, no ministry he cannot bless, no grief he cannot comfort, no life he cannot reclaim, no sinner he cannot save. The God of the virgin birth, he says, is the God who makes all things possible. Again, Luke composed this writing that, that we might know, that we might be sure of God's promises, that we might be sure that with God, nothing is impossible. Jesus isn't afraid to say that, even though he knows that many of us will go off the rails with that into unhealthy places. He goes on in verses 7 to 10. It says, will any one of you who has a servant plowing or, or keeping sheep say to him when he has come in from the field, come at once and recline at table? Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink and afterward you will eat and drink? Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? 
So you also, Jesus says, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. What is Jesus talking about here? And, and is it divorced from everything that he's just said? Well, he's just made plain that it's not so much the quantity of faith that matters, but rather the sovereign power of the might of the one in whom our faith is placed. That faith as small as a mustard seed is sufficient if the object of such faith is the God for whom nothing is too difficult. And yet Jesus understands that the danger of pride still lurks. Which helps to explain why he presents the apostles with the imagery of a servant and a master. And with that imagery, a series of, of questions meant to get at the heart of what it truly means to be a disciple. Just as we have nothing to boast about as it pertains to our faith, verses 5 and 6, so we have nothing to boast about as it pertains to our obedience, verses 7 through 10. That it, think about it this way. If we manage to live lives of perfect, righteous obedience down to the jot and tittle of the law, obeying each and every command that the Lord has ever given throughout the course of redemptive history, Jesus says, you've simply done what you were supposed to do in mirroring the character of the God in, in whose image you were made. Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord, 2 Corinthians 10, 17. Our absolute best falls short of what God deserves from us. And with that, the silliness of the notion that we can somehow put God in our debt. If I'm honest, not only have I struggled with the, the navel-gazing at the faith meter, so to speak, but there's a part of me that would really like a transactional relationship with God. Anybody with me on that one? The, the, the kind of relationship where you could put in deposits and then make with, withdrawals? I'm reminded of the older brother yet again in the parable of the prodigal son. It's no way to live. A man who thought he could put his father in his debt through self-wrought obedience. I obeyed you all these years. I was one of the, the 99 righteous sheep who never ran away. Look at my track record. Where's my fattened calf? Where's my withdrawal? No joy in his life. No dancing. Just duty. Dutiful servitude. Enslaved, though sonship was his. In the end, talked about this before, it was the, the younger brother who returned home, was forgiven and was embraced by his father and who stood inside his father's house in joyful celebration. Meanwhile, it was the older brother standing on the outside, looking in, filled with self-righteous anger, so close that he could smell the meat on the grill and feel the thump of the music in his chest. And yet he missed it. It's no way to live Constantly navel-gazing. Is my faith going up or down? I put in deposits. Can I make a withdrawal now, God? And yet so many in the church live that way. That's what I meant earlier when I said this is an opportunity this morning for some freedom in the Christian life. For some song and dance. The gospel declares that we are unworthy servants 
with Jesus himself, the only worthy servant. Philippians 2, who humbled himself, took on the form of a servant, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, that you and I might be counted worthy in the eyes of God. That's the transaction that we want, the transaction that we refer to by the word justification, Christ imputing his righteousness to us, us imputing our sin to him. Martin Luther calls it the great exchange. I don't think that was sufficient enough. The greatest exchange. For some, maybe today is the day of salvation, the day to repent of your sins and to turn in faith to Jesus for forgiveness, to know the weight taken off of you for the first time in your life. And for we who profess to be his disciples, remember, he turned to his disciples as we pick up chapter 17. The more we steep in the grace of God in Jesus Christ, the more natural it becomes to declare, and not just declare, but declare with joy, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. Thank you, Lord, for not giving us what we truly deserve, namely your righteous and holy wrath poured out upon sinners like us. Thank you for giving us what we don't deserve, the fullness of your mercy, grace, and forgiveness in Jesus Christ. We give our lives to you in humility and gratitude, not in an effort to put you in our debt, which we could never do, but simply as a sacrifice of praise. Such a sacrifice of praise, looking at this morning's passage in its fullness, may mean repenting of leading others away from Jesus, of derailing others in their Christian journey by what we've said or done, or perhaps at times have failed to say or do. Such a sacrifice of praise may mean embodying the truth necessary to confront unrepentant sin. Perhaps the grace necessary to restore repentant sinners with open arms. Such a sacrifice of praise may mean crying out simply, I believe, Jesus, help my unbelief. Trusting that that faith as small as a, a mustard seed is sufficient. Again, if the object of such faith is the God for whom nothing is too difficult. Such a sacrifice of praise may mean repenting of the heart disposition of the older brother. This notion that we could put the father in our debt through self-wrought obedience. If I could just remind us all of what Jesus says awaits those who live as such faithful servants of the master who give their lives as a sacrifice of praise. And it sounds counterintuitive to verses 7 through 10. And yet it's on the horizon. Going back to chapter 12, verses 35 through 37. There Jesus said, stay dressed for action. Keep your lamps burning. Be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those servants Whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly I say to you, listen to this, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table and he will come and serve them. That that has a weightiness on its own, doesn't it? What in the world? What grace? What mercy? 
You have the master of an estate. Having left his home to attend a wedding feast, his servants expectantly ready, waiting for him to come. Prepared to open the door upon hearing his knock, even if that knock should come in the second or third watch of the night when most of the world is sleeping. Rewarded, Jesus says, for their readiness with a feast of their own, seated around the master's table. The master himself so well pleased that he's happy to reverse roles in serving those who had so faithfully served him. Jesus declares that his second coming will be like that. On a day when well done, good and faithful servant, isn't that good enough? Don't you just want to hear those words from Jesus? On a day when well done, good and faithful servant will be followed by the joy of the feast at the master's table. I pray that these words of Jesus would would fill us with both joyful gratitude and sobering urgency as we've too talked about in Luke's gospel account along the way. Joyful gratitude and knowing that, that Jesus, the worthy servant, has made a way for unworthy servants like you and me To have a seat at that great table by his grace. That he's made a way for us to be free from from living a life of navel gazing. Constantly wondering if our our faith measures up to the task. Constantly living as if this relationship with God is meant to simply be transactional. Joyful gratitude for the freedom of those burdens lifted off of our shoulders. And not just what we've been freed from, but freed to, to the song, to the dance. James might call himself a song and dance man, but God truly is the song and dance man. Joyful gratitude paired with a sobering urgency. An urgency in terms of our expectation for the master's return, readiness for it. Prepared to open the door immediately upon hearing his knock, so to speak. Longing for the the, the return of the one who gave his life for us. Giving our lives for him in glad submission until we see him face to face. Do you see, maybe, are you beginning to see what Luke is truly seeking to communicate to us? What Jesus is seeking to communicate to us? These teachings on discipleship, they are sobering. They come with a gravitas. But they also lift the weight, the the burden of things we're not meant to carry. They invite us into the song, into the dance.